launch our exposition this morning is Genesis chapter 3 and verse 15. After the fall, God speaks to the devil. And he says to him, in Genesis 3.15, I will put enmity between you and the woman and between your seed and her seed. And he will crush your head and you will bruise his heel. Now let's pray for God's blessing upon the ministry of his holy word. Father, once again, bow in your presence. We plead for your grace with thankfulness. We need the Holy Spirit to bless the word, we have no safety net. Apart from him, his presence, we are of all people most miserable. Our worship service is of all worship services the most empty. Therefore we plead with you, dear God, draw near to us. Grant that your holy word comes in power and in the Holy Spirit and in much assurance. Glorify your name. We ask it in Jesus' name. Amen. Now we want peace. We pray for peace. Yet we live in a world full of conflicts. And yet among all those conflicts, one conflict is critical. This text describes that decisive conflict. God says, I will put enmity. I will initiate conflict. I will do it. We all stand on one side or the other of this conflict. This determinative conflict is not a political conflict. It's not about one political party against another political party. This conflict is deeper than that. It's a decisive conflict. Where you stand with regard to this conflict determines where you will spend eternity. Therefore, this conflict has relevance for everyone personally. Our text explains its origin. God says, I will put enmity. Secondly, it describes its spread or its duration or its perpetuation. He says, not only I will put enmity between you and the woman, but it says, I will put enmity between your seed and her seed 
It's going to spread between the devil's children, offspring, and Eve's children, offspring. And finally, it alludes to the conclusion of this conflict. It says, and he, referring to Christ, will crush your head. It's going to end with the destruction and crushing of the serpent, the devil. So uh, that's what I want to open up this morning. I want to open up the origin and the spread and the conclusion of this determinative or decisive or ultimate conflict. And then I want to draw some practical applications, ramifications. First of all, look at the origin of it. God says, I will put enmity. I will start this conflict. God starts it. But look at the context in which God starts it. It takes place in the context of the fall of man into sin. God made man, made man upright, but they sought out many inventions. God put Adam and Eve in the garden. He put him there to till it and to guard it, and he put her there to be his helper and his wife. And he said to them with great generosity, of all the trees of the garden you may freely eat, but of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil you shall not eat from it. And yet through the temptation and instigation of the devil, the serpent, Eve took and ate, she gave to Adam and he ate. And in that eating of the forbidden fruit, they fell into sin. And in that context, God confronts them. He confronts Adam and Eve and the devil. And to the devil, he says, I will put enmity between you and the woman. So he's going to create a spiritual tension, a spiritual hostility, a spiritual war between Eve and Satan. Now, how does he do that? He does that through saving Eve from sin. He delivers her from sin, from the power of the devil. So when God saves sinners, that very salvation creates an enmity, a tension, a spiritual conflict between them and the devil. He saves her through the gospel. He saves her by faith. He saves her by conversion. And God says, I will do it. There's no condition. Now, I'm not saying that the gospel does not come to sinners with a condition saying repent and believe the gospel. But here's the mystery. 
God gives to sinners the very repentance and faith that he requires. He takes out the heart of stone and he puts in the heart of flesh. He takes out a wicked heart of unbelief and creates in sinners a good and honest heart that believes and repents. So that even conversion which requires repentance and faith as gospel conditions. Even that is the gift of God. And when he says, I will put enmity, what he means is, I will give repentance and faith. I will give a new heart. I and I alone, unilaterally, through my power, unconditionally, when the gospel goes forth and says, repent and believe, I will create that enmity by giving a repentant, believing heart to those that are dead in sin. God does it. It's all of God. It's all of grace. This is God's pledge to start a spiritual war in fallen mankind. To save justly through the work of his son those who deserve to go to hell now how does he decide which ones he has mercy on whom he will Paul says and whom he will he hardens sees the whole human race fallen in sin and on some he has mercy and when he does He creates enmity between them and the devil. God starts this war. It's all of God. It's all of grace. I will put enmity. Which is why theologians have typically and commonly referred to this pledge as the covenant of grace. But secondly, look with me at the spread or the perpetuation or the duration of this war. He says, I will put enmity between you and the woman and between your seed and her seed. That very same spiritual enmity that God creates between Eve and the devil when he saves Eve and gives her a new heart, he will perpetuate, he says, that enmity will spread and will be continued and perpetuated in every generation and will last in every generation between the devil's seed and Eve's seed. So as we read in Genesis chapter 4, When Seth was born, Eve said, God has granted me another seed to replace Abel because Cain killed him. Now, wasn't Cain her physical descendant? He was. But whose seed, whose posterity was he? We read in 1 John chapter 3 and verse 12 that Cain was of the wicked one. He was one of the devil's children. 
He may have been Eve's physical offspring, but he was not her, quote, seed. He was not her spiritual child. Abel was her spiritual child. He was saved by faith. Cain was the spiritual child of the devil. And in Genesis chapter 4, you see the picture of this enmity between the devil's seed, Cain, and Eve's spiritual child, Abel. The righteous, Abel. The wicked, Cain. The spiritual enmity and tension between the righteous and the wicked is illustrated concretely in the case of Cain and Abel. Cain, the devil's child. Abel, Eve's spiritual child and a child of God. So that Eve's spiritual children are God's spiritual children. That's why we read in 1 John 3.10, in this the children of God and the children of the devil are made manifest. Cain was the devil's child, spiritually. Even though he was a physical descendant of Adam and Eve, he was the devil's seed. 1 John says so explicitly. So that this enmity between the devil's children and Eve's children is a spiritual enmity between God's children and the devil's children, between the righteous and the wicked. And this enmity between the righteous and the wicked is perpetuated in every generation until the second coming of Christ. This is conflict that has spread to the entire human race. The conflict is here today. This conflict is not between conservatives and progressives. It's not between one political party and another political party. The conflict is between the children of God and the children of the devil. Between the devil's spiritual children and God's spiritual children. That is the decisive, determinative conflict that has spread through the human race faster than any virus, more contagious than any virus. It has spread this war to the entire human race. And why is that? Because of original sin. Sin spread to the whole human race through Adam. In Romans chapter 3, we read, We have before laid to the charge of Jews and Greeks that they are all under sin. No exceptions. None righteous, no, not as much as one. In Romans chapter 5, verses 12 to 21, we read about how the sin of Adam brought death to the entire human race in Adam all die. In, in Adam and because of Adam and his sin, all of us sinned when he sinned. We ate when he ate. And because of that, we're all conceived guilty and dead in trespasses and sins. So that we read in Ephesians 2 verses 1 to 3 that we were by nature children of wrath even as the rest. But then, but God, being rich in mercy, here's the beauty of it, God is committed. He says, I will put enmity, 
between the devil and Eve. His children, God's children, and the devil's children. And between your seed, like Cain, the devil's spiritual children, and her seed, like Abel, God's spiritual children. I will perpetuate, I will continue that enmity in every generation. That enmity spread to the whole human race because God is committed to save sinners through the gospel, through his word, by the power of his spirit in every generation. If it were left to us, we'd all be the devil's children. There'd be no children of God. But God is committed to perpetuate this spiritual enmity. It's not an accident. Because we were by nature children of wrath, even as the rest. But God, being rich in mercy, with the great love with which he loved us, even when we were dead in our trespasses and sins, made us alive together with Christ. By grace you have been saved. God has saved some of the human race in every generation in order to fulfill his pledge and perpetuate this ultimate determinative conflict. He saved some in every generation over, over the entire span of history from the time he uttered these words to this very day we have on earth the devil's spiritual children and God's spiritual children so it has been, so it is, and so it ever will be while the earth remains. Because God has committed and pledged to spread and perpetuate this enmity in every generation until Jesus returns. Blessed be God. If it were left to us, to man, there would only be the devil's children. But that's not true. There are, there are God's children in every generation. The gospel has come in power and it always will. Isn't that encouraging? That we know that spreading the gospel and testifying of grace and of Christ is not a fool's errand. It's not a hopeless effort. Because the things impossible with men are possible with God. And he has committed to save sinners in every generation. Like he saved us, he will save others. He will continue to save others in every generation till Jesus comes back. That's the perpetuation of the conflict. So God says, I will put enmity. And then he perpetuates he spreads that enmity in every generation to the whole human race. He says, between your seed, that's the devil's spiritual children, and her seed, that's Eve's spiritual children, like Abel, God's spiritual children. And then let's look finally at the conclusion of this determinative conflict. He alludes to it when he says, He, Christ, will crush your head. Jesus Christ will destroy the devil. And Jesus himself speaks of it. Not only did he accomplish redemption, not only do we read that through his sacrifice on his cross, 
in 1 John 3.8 that Jesus was manifested to destroy the works of the devil. Jesus himself in Matthew 25 verses 31 to 46 he speaks about the eternal fire prepared for the devil and his angels. The devil will be cast into the lake of fire. All the demons will be cast into the lake of fire. Jesus Christ when he returns will completely crush and destroy the devil and all the demons. They will be thrown into the lake of fire forever and ever and they will never trouble God's people again. And along with them will be thrown into that fire all of the wicked, all the devil's spiritual children that have ever lived in every generation. The wicked of every generation that live and die in their sins. The devil's spiritual children. All of them with the devil and the demons will be cast into the lake of fire. That's how this conflict is going to end. It's going to end then and there. They're going into the lake of fire. Jesus said so. The passage that we read this morning. And now he's patient. When is he coming back? Some people want to know. 2 Peter 3.9 says, The Lord is not slack concerning his promise, as some count slackness, but is long-suffering to you, word, not wishing that any should perish, but that all should come to repentance. It is his intention to save multitudes upon multitudes, a great multitude that no man can number of those that are lost and dead in sins and it is his intention to save great multitudes and as long as he tarries you know what it means it means that there are still some here on earth either in this generation or in the next generations that he intends to save and when the last one is saved he will come and he will judge the world. So there's still hope. And we read this morning. Let me remind what it says. In verses 31 and 32. When the Son of Man will come in his glory. And the angels with him. Then he will sit on the throne of his glory. And before him will be gathered all the nations. And he'll separate them one from another. He will separate the devil's children and God's children. The goats, the devil's children, the wicked on his left hand. And the sheep, God's children, the spiritual children of Eve on his right hand, the righteous. And he'll say to the righteous, the spiritual children of God and of Eve, Come you blessed of my father, inherit the kingdom prepared for you from the foundation of the world. And then he'll say to those on his left hand, the spiritual children of the devil, the wicked, depart from me, you cursed, into the eternal fire prepared for the devil and his angels, the devil and the demons, and all of the devil's spiritual children, the wicked, go into that lake of fire forever. And these shall go away to eternal punishment, but the righteous to eternal life. And Jesus says when he comes back, he's going to distinguish only two kinds of people, not progressives and conservatives. 
That's not going to be the determining factor, what political party you belong to. That's going to have nothing to do with it. But when he comes back, there's only going to be two kinds of human beings. It's not going to have to do with ethnicity, and it's not going to have to do with political affiliation. It's going to have to do with one thing. Are you God's child, or are you the devil's child? Are you righteous, or are you wicked? And he will separate those in the state of sin from those who lived on earth in the state of grace. And the goats are the wicked, the spiritual children of the devil, who live and die in the state of sin and suffer eternal punishment. And the sheep are the spiritual children of God, who live on earth in the state of grace, and who experience eternal life. Well, that's what Scripture says, as I understand it, about this determinative or decisive conflict in which all of us now are engaged. It includes the whole human race. Every single one of us. So the question then is this. If God starts this conflict, and if it spreads to the whole human race and lasts until the second coming, and if Christ is going to bring it to conclusion by blessing the righteous with eternal life in the new heavens and earth and by condemning and damning the wicked in the lake of fire with the devil and the demons. So what? Does that have any relevance for you today, sitting right here? You know, I've heard people say, and it really doesn't make a whole lot of sense to me. But I've heard people say, so you're saying then that God is going to damn people on the day of judgment. He's going to send them away to a place of everlasting suffering in a lake of fire. You're saying that? Well, they say, I'll never serve a God like that. And I, I just, it makes me scratch my head. Because it makes me say, what kind of thinking is this? <laughs> Stop and think about what that means. All right, this God is going to send me to hell forever. I'll never serve him. What? If you really believe that, that's the God you want to fight with? <laughs> what did you say? You don't really believe it or you'd never talk like that. It's not, you know who said that? It wasn't me. It wasn't some Baptist preacher who decided he wanted to terrify people, so he stood up and said things like that. These words came out of the mouth of Jesus. Now, if you take that seriously, what kind of person that takes that really seriously, says, I'll never serve a God like that. I mean, do you think you're going to defeat him? How are you going to defeat an omnipotent God with all power? You think you're not going to stand before him in judgment? It doesn't say that any of those wicked people, any of those goats said, we're not standing here. We're not going to be present at your throne on the day of judgment. We're going elsewhere. No, you're not going elsewhere. You're going to stand there and you're going to be answerable to him. You're not going to overthrow his government. 
not going to overthrow his rule. Jesus said when he comes, he is going to sit on the throne, and everybody's going to be there, whether they want to be there or not, whether they like him or hate him. They're all going to be there, and they're all going to hear what he has to say, and they're all going to be accountable to him, whether they like it or not. And they're all going to go either to the eternal kingdom of glory or to eternal punishment, whether they like it or not. So what kind of madness is it to say, I'll never serve a God like that who does that? That's, that doesn't make any sense. If you actually believe that he does that, how can you sit here or stand here or go anywhere and say, I'll never serve a God who does that? That's crazy. You will serve him. In the sense that you will stand there and you will hear those words and you will go into the lake of fire. So how can you say that you're going to rebel against and reject a God who does that? He is going to do that. And if you continue in your sin, he's going to do it to you. Now look, I'm not saying I'm any better than you are. I deserve to hear those words, depart you cursed, every bit as much as you do. I do. I'm no better. I deserve to go to hell as much as anybody who ever lived. But it, it, it doesn't make any sense to say you're not going to serve a God who sends people to hell. Because that's where he's going to send you. doesn't make sense. It's a self-contradiction. You're contradicting yourself. I know, telling people that is never going to wake them up because you don't really believe in your heart that there is such a God. You don't really believe in your heart that he is going to send people to hell or you wouldn't talk like that. But Jesus not only believed it, he said it. And Jesus is God incarnate. And he warned us. And God says, he's not sadistic. I have no pleasure in the death of the wicked but rather that he turn and live. Why will you die? Turn from your sin. Believe in the Lord Jesus. Repent from your sin. And call upon Jesus. Like in the days of Seth, thousands of years ago, then began men to call on the name of the Lord. Call on his name. Whosoever will call on the name of the Lord will be saved. Ask him to save you and rescue you from that awful wrath because he is coming back and when the last one that he wants to save is, going to, is saved, he's going to come back. And then exactly what he said is going to happen is going to happen. And you don't want to be with the goats on that day. I don't want to be with the goats on that day. And you don't want to be either. Not if you know what's good for you. I entreat you, therefore, please, in your own best interest, get right with God. Call on the name of the Lord. And the Apostle Paul tells Christians, and I just want to read this text in 2 Corinthians chapter 6. This is what he tells us. He tells us this. In 2 Corinthians 6.14, folks, don't get yourself inappropriately entangled with the goats. Don't get yourself inappropriately entangled with the wicked. Verse 14, don't be unequally yoked together with unbelievers. For what fellowship does righteousness have with unrighteousness? What communion does light have with darkness? Verse 16, 
What agreement does God's temple have with idols? Because you are the temple of the living God. As God has said, I will dwell in them and walk in them, and I'll be their God and they'll be my people. So come out from among them and be separate, says the Lord. And touch no unclean thing and I'll receive you and I'll be to you a father and you'll be to me sons and daughters, says the Lord Almighty. Having therefore these promises duly beloved, let's cleanse ourselves from all defilement of flesh and spirit in order to complete holiness in the fear of God. First of all, to the Christian church, what this means is we do not receive into the fellowship of any Christian church any person who is unconverted and wicked. The wicked have no right to belong to the church. When Christ came, when God became, when God the Son became God the Son incarnate, Jesus Christ, he formed the assembly of his disciples on earth. He formed his church, sent his Holy Spirit, united his people in heaven and on earth, formed his new covenant community. The churches on earth are the visible earthly chapter community of Zion that he formed. The wicked have no right to live in these gated communities, the earthly communities of Zion. They have no right to be church members. They have no right to belong to the church. Now, it may be that the wicked may infiltrate the church, but they have no right there. They have no right to be members in good standing in any church on earth. Come ye out from among them and be ye separate. Now, this has various applications to various things. First of all, it has application to young single Christians, or old single Christians for that matter. Do not be unequally yoked together by contracting a marriage with an ungodly, unconverted, wicked person. Paul says in 1 Corinthians chapter 7, that she may be married to whom she will only in the Lord. Christians ought not to be entering into marriage arrangements with unconverted wicked people. That is being unequally yoked together with unbelievers. He also goes on to say in 1 Corinthians 7 that if you are converted while you're married to an unconverted person, that doesn't mean you should divorce them. But you should stay together in that marriage unless, of course, the unbeliever just deserts you and departs and says, I don't want any part of being married to a Christian. And they take off and leave. Then in such a case, the believer is not in bondage, but free. Free to remarry. But we ought not to be entering into marriages with unconverted people and romantic relations that lead to marriage with unconverted people. And we need wisdom to know how far and when to separate from unconverted people. For example, the day was coming when God was sending 
fire and brimstone out of heaven on Sodom and Gomorrah. And he told Lot to move away from there. Get out of there. Don't live there in proximity to these wicked people anymore because judgment is coming upon them. Jesus warned his followers in the first century, when you see this happen, then let those that are living in Judea flee, get out of there, move out of there, move to the mountains. So we need wisdom as God's people to know when we should move away, even from physical proximity to the wicked who are about to experience the judgment and destruction from the hand of the Lord. There comes a time when that happens. So, because of this, the righteous and the wicked and this conflict, we need to be very careful that we do not come under the molding influence of the wicked. We need to separate from them prudently. We don't want to enter into marriages with the wicked. We don't want to live in proximity with the wicked if and when the judgment of God is coming upon them to destroy them. We don't want to come under the influence of the wicked. Blessed is the man who does not walk in the counsel of the ungodly. Parents, need seriously to consider whether it is in the best interest of their children to put them under the molding influence of wicked people for the sake of their children's own spiritual well-being. So it's not a simple thing to figure out, folks. But the principle is the counsel of the ungodly, the influence of the ungodly, commitment, conjugally and marriage with the ungodly, all of these things. Scripture warns us not to come under the influence of the wicked, not to allow them to be members or leaders or teachers in the church of Christ. Come out from among them and be you separate. And yet, there's a balancing principle. And that's the principle of interaction. We are not of the world, but we are still in the world. The Bible doesn't tell us that we should refuse to have any social interaction with ungodly people. In fact, the Pharisees condemned Jesus Because they said, this man eats with sinners. And we need to show hospitality and kindness and benevolence and testimony and example to the ungodly in our society. We need to treat them with kindness and with love and with grace and compassion and mercy, benevolence. Paul says in 1 Corinthians 5, I'm not saying when I'm telling you to 
put under discipline and social restriction, any professing Christian who's living a grossly wicked, immoral life. He says, I'm not saying that that means you shouldn't have any fellowship or anything with any wicked person in the world, otherwise you'd have to come out of the world. It's not telling us that we should have no interaction whatsoever with the wicked. It's what uh, David says. Then I will teach transgressors your ways. And being ready always to give an answer to anyone who asks about the hope that is in you. So, when they're open to hear it, we teach. We testify. We show kindness. We show benevolence. We don't just write people off because they're wicked and have nothing whatsoever to do with them. No, you don't marry an ungodly person. But that doesn't mean that you can't testify to one and show kindness to one and be benevolent to one or give hospitality to one. So there's a balance. There's a razor's edge of a separation that avoids being molded by the influence of the ungodly and an interaction which shows kindness and benevolence to God's enemies. Just like God. He is kind to the unthankful and to the evil. And you will be sons of your father because he makes his sun to rise on the just and the unjust and sends rain on the just and on the unjust. And then, brothers and sisters, if we ought to pray, Paul said, my heart's desire and supplication to God is for them talking of his unconverted relatives that they might be saved. We need to pray for our unconverted relatives. Pray for our unconverted friends. Pray for our unconverted workmates and neighbors and people that we know and love and care about. We need to pray for them that like God had mercy on us, God would have mercy and save them too. Finally, don't be discouraged. This conflict is coming to an end. It's going to be concluded. How's it going to be concluded when Christ comes? So it's not going to last forever. Jesus is coming back. And when he comes back, this conflict will be over. It will be over forever. The wicked will never trouble us anymore. The devil will never trouble us anymore. The demons will never trouble us anymore. The day is coming when Jesus returns. Folks, we're never going to see this conflict end on this in this world, as long as we live here, we're going to be involved in it. We're going to have to face it. Don't be shocked if the world hates you. Jesus said it hated me before it hated you. Don't be shocked. Don't be surprised that you face enmity and persecution and hatred from wicked people. You're going to face it. You're going to live with it. We live in a world filled with that hate so that we might be conformed to our beloved Savior in his suffering and his humiliation so that we might be conformed to him in his exaltation and glory. What a privilege. It's not going to go away as long as we live. The conflict is going to remain in every generation. But when he comes, this conflict is coming to an end. We are never going to have, no matter where we go on earth, even if we get in a boat like the pilgrims did some, what, 400 years ago now. Wow, hard to believe, huh? And try to sail away from conflict and persecution and sail over an entire ocean and a, little, a few little boats and 
land somewhere else and try to start a, a society in which there's religious liberty, etc. There's no place on earth you can go. There's no place on earth you can hide. Wherever you go, you're going to run into this conflict between the righteous and the wicked. It's going to be here. It's going to be everywhere in every generation. Wherever you go, it's going to, it's going to be here on earth. It's never going away on earth. But thanks be to God, it is going away. And our hope is not for a utopia in this world, completely free from conflict, because there isn't ever going to be any such thing. Our hope is for a new heavens and a new earth wherein dwells righteousness. Don't allow yourself to be discouraged. Don't be cast down. Don't give over to despair. Don't give up hope. Jesus is coming. And when he does, this conflict is coming to an end. And is going to be ushered in a new heavens and a new earth in which only righteousness dwells forever. Even so come, Lord Jesus. May God be pleased to bless his word to our hearts. Let's pray. Father, thank you for the hope that Jesus is coming to deliver us from this conflict forever and ever. We pray, Father, for everyone that listens to the sound of my voice, that we would all be numbered on that great day when he comes, not with the goats, but with the sheep. We admit we deserve to go to hell. We pray, Lord, you had mercy on us. Have mercy on all who hear as well. Deliver from the wrath to come. You have made a commitment to save some in every generation. Save some now. Save some today. Save through the ministry of the word. Show love. Give glory to the name of Jesus because he is worthy. We ask these things in his most holy name. Amen.